Ref Focus with Maples Teasdale, the law firm where real estate really matters. Hello, and welcome to our quarterly Ref Focus podcast or Refocus podcast, where we discuss our top takeaways on current topics. I'm Brooke. And I'm Catherine. We have recently commented on the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank in our insight, the SVB story, a series of avoidable events. The collapse of SVB has sparked a myriad of questions for both lenders and borrowers. And in today's episode, we are going to look at some of those questions and give you our top takeaways on lender insolvency. Brooke is going to kick us off with arguably the most important question for borrowers. If a lender goes insolvent, do they have to honour a loan? In a bilateral arrangement, a lender that has gone insolvent does not have to honour any committed amount that has not been lent. However, note that a lender's insolvency will not normally make any money that has already been lent immediately repayable. In a syndicated facility, other banks will not have to fund the insolvent bank's share of the loan. Borrowers will therefore need to reevaluate their funding sources if they have any unlent committed amounts when the lender goes insolvent. So, Catherine, tell me. Are there any protections in place that borrowers can expect when banks hit financial difficulty and, in certain cases, go bust? Well, it really depends on the loan documentation. In bilateral arrangements, there are unlikely to be any protections in place. However, it is also unlikely that lender insolvency will trigger immediate repayment in a bilateral arrangement. In contrast, in syndicated or syndicatable facilities, there might be LMAO-style protections, for example, the defaulting lender provisions or the impaired agent provisions, depending on the role that the insolvent bank plays in the facility. Both provisions were devised in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis in order to minimise the impact of lender insolvency on facility arrangements. Firstly, the defaulting lender provisions. These provisions will kick in when a lender goes into default. For example, if they become subject to an insolvency event or if they're unable to make part of a loan available. The aim of these provisions is to make sure that the facility can continue to operate and isn't frustrated. For example, they afford borrowers the power to force defaulting lenders to transfer their loan obligations to new lenders, assuming someone is willing to take on the obligation. The impaired agent provisions, similarly to the defaulting lender provisions, will come into force if an agent is subject to an insolvency event or if they fail to make a payment. Under these provisions, the insolvent bank acting as agent is effectively removed from the transaction. The lender and the borrower would henceforth need to communicate directly with each other. This brings us on to our next takeaway. Brooke, could you please talk to us quickly about commitment fees? Commitment fees are fees payable by the borrower to the lender under a facility agreement to compensate the lender for putting aside the loan amount. They are incurred when the lender charges the borrower on the undrawn portion of the facility based on the amount agreed in the heads of terms. Therefore, if a bank becomes insolvent, borrowers should look to cancel undrawn commitments where possible as an insolvent bank is unlikely to honour a drawdown request, but commitment fees will still continue to accrue. On the topic of fees, What other fees may a borrower need to pay and to whom, Catherine? In a bilateral facility, borrowers will need to continue to pay principal, interest and fees to the lender, unless and until otherwise instructed. This is because the repayment of the loan is an asset of the lender, 
which an insolvency practitioner will want to preserve. In a syndicated facility, if the lender is in default, the borrower will continue to pay the agent as normal for the benefit of the remaining lenders. However, if the agent is in default, they will be unable to process payments and the borrower should not pay them. The remaining lenders will therefore want to replace the agent as soon as possible. This brings us to our final takeaway. Catherine, can you run us through set-off as an available remedy in lender insolvency to our listeners? Set-off is one of the remedies available to borrowers. But to be clear, we're talking here about mandatory insolvency set-off rather than contractual set-off. This is because contractual set-off is normally expressly prohibited under finance documents, as it adversely affects the lender's ability to use the loan as collateral for other purposes. So, an example of how a mandatory insolvency set-off would work? You owe the bank £100, but the bank has £50 of your pounds in the account. Then your credit would be applied to your debit, and you would only be required to pay the bank £50 as opposed to £100. However, there are several hoops to jump through. For example, set-off will only apply to arrangements made before the bank went insolvent. In order for this remedy to be effective, there also needs to be mutuality, meaning that the money needs to be owed in the same capacity. For example, if there is another entity in the group who has credit with the bank, this amount could not be set off against the debit because there's no mutuality. The parties are different and therefore the money is not owed in the same capacity. That was our top five takeaways on lender insolvency. For more detail, please see our recent insight, the SVB story, a series of avoidable events. Thanks for listening. Ref Focus with Maples Teasdale, the law firm where real estate really matters.